Welcome to Wishes Granted. I'm Kyle, and today I am joined by Wendy Atieno and Liz Mullen Bernhardt, and they are working at the fund Ecosystem Based Adaptation, EBA, and they work on conservation management, restoration of forests, grasslands, wetlands, mangroves, and coral reefs. They have a deadline coming up, at least the next deadline is February 28, 2000. 22. But if you're listening to this a few years down the road, they'll probably have some other call proposals. And just to give people a sense of the size of this, they're looking to fund something between 50K to $250,000. And they're looking for something catalytic. And that kind of means like there's, it's something that's pretty fresh and there's some barrier to entry and they need, you need a little bit of money, hopefully between 50 and $250,000 to get over that little hump. So that's what catalytic is. And that's a really good explainer of, from them saying what they're looking for. So Wendy, Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I thought we'd start off with, maybe you could give a little more introduction Correct me wherever I was wrong in the the, the introduction, and you can, you can say a bit about you know what you're doing, what you're looking for next. Sure, I'll let me start off, and then I think Wendy will jump in with with uh, more about the funds criteria and about EBA itself. But basically, there's been a lot of interest in around the world, I think, in what we call nature-based solutions, or when we apply that for adaptation purposes, we call that ecosystem-based adaptation. So it's basically finding ways to conserve, protect, restore nature and the, the services that nature provides, right, in order to protect humans from the impacts of climate change. And that's, that's kind of at the core of the idea of EBA. EBA has been around for quite a while as a term, and, and our colleagues at IUCN were kind of the, the, the parents of the term. It's been around for more than 10 years, but EBA hasn't really been taken up yet at a really large scale. And so one of the things we're trying to do with this fund is to really find those catalytic actions that can help overcome some of the barriers that we're seeing to EBA to make it more impactful, maybe spread to a new area that it hasn't been applied to before or over a bigger geographical area or scope. So that's what the fund is, is looking to do. Research gaps, piloting EBA approaches, engaging in strategic policy measurements. Uh, those are the kinds of things that could be examples of what the fund might, might, might support. That's quite a range from policy to research which I would say like maybe is the next more concrete and then actually implementing projects, but not something that is something's already been done, already been established, that's relatively low risk and is sort of copying what's already existing from what I understand. Well, I think that there is scope for, you know, it could be innovative if you've tried something in one part of the world right? But haven't yet introduced that to another part of the world. Or maybe you've tried something in one type of ecosystem and it hasn't yet been tried in another. So that whole question of what innovation is, we leave it a little bit up to um, interpretation. And uh, as those, those of us who are looking through the, the applications that we get, sometimes we know innovation when we see it. <laughs> we haven't put mm -hmm. a lot of, we, have, we haven't really tried to box it in by saying that we know what innovation looks like. So certainly a pilot project could be innovative or, or, or retrying something that has been tried before could be innovative as well. It depends on, on the, the context. All right, great. So I'd like to pitch you a company I've just made up 
and you'll let me know if it's something that sounds like it'd be suitable or not. And it's good to get into some specifics so that you can, you know, you can let me know which parts of this would not be appealing or would be appealing. Okay. So today we're going to talk about Bamboo Kenya. Bamboo Kenya restores ecosystems in Kenya, as you might imagine, using non-invasive species, important there, to collect any of the runoff. It's basically planted along the uh, rivers and streams to collect any runoff from farms and to hold the soil in place and all these good things. And then even better, it's sustainable because it can be cut down once it's fully grown and turned into bamboo products. Now, this is the first of its kind in Kenya, but not the first of its kind in the world, obviously. Would this or would this not be something that would be interesting for EBA? I can just jump in here and say, I think before even getting to Bamboo Kenya, it'd be good to talk about the criteria for the EBA fund. And so okay. this had provided you know, the general rationale for the fund and the reasons why we wanted to establish this to begin with. But just thinking about the criteria of the fund, there are three main criteria and one of which is an eligibility. But there's additional information on the website as well. It's an extensive document that really goes into depth. But just broadly speaking, the first criteria is that EV, the project, whatever the proposed project is, has to contribute to the implementation of ecosystem-based adaptation. And it has to align with the EBA qualification criteria and quality standards. So this is you know, primary before we start looking at, is this project an EBA project? And there's specific criteria to guide that. Then of course, there's the question of innovation and catalytic impact. As you said, you're looking for something that's going to spur further innovation, that's going to spur further change. So what does that look like and how do they present that for, for based on the project? And really, there's no way specifically to define this. As Liz had mentioned, you know, we can't be prescriptive about it and say this is what innovation is, this is what catalytic impact is. It has to depend on the context of the project where it's being implemented, what is the socioeconomic or the sociopolitical context? What are the ecosystems that are present? What are the climatic risks that are the, the community is facing and how the project is going to be addressing that? And then there's a third criteria, which is adding value to or upscaling existing work. What is the research that has been carried out supporting this project to this end? If it's an implementation project, have other projects been implemented? Is it adding a component of implementation to what is already existing or, you know, as we were talking about earlier, is it just copy pasting something that's existing in that particular region? And the fourth one I mentioned for eligibility, again, as you talked about, is it's between 50 to 250, and it has to be implemented in a country that's eligible for official development assistance, which is published by the OECD every year, of which Kenya is one of those countries. So going back to that, what I would say, you know, I can't say at this point with the information that you provided that this project is one that we would definitely we would have to look at it based on these criteria. So if it's looking at um, cultivation of bamboo, you said if for river stabilization, is that what you said? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so looking at the climate climate debt data that's present for the particular region, what are the climate climactic impacts that the region is currently facing? What are the future projected impacts? Does cultivating bamboo for river stabilization help with addressing those impacts? That's the first question that we would ask. So I have a question about that mm -hmm. because in theory, it sounds like, of course, we want to have data on this, but in practice, not so easy, right? Okay. How exactly. many, how many projects actually, so how important is that data actually? Like if you see a project like, wow, this sounds, this sounds really great, but and you, you can never have perfect data anyway. You can never be sure, 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 right? Even if you have RCT, whatever, you're never going to know for sure. 
this is mother nature we're talking about. So how, how important is it? And where do you, how important is that data to you? Cause that different funders experience that data differently. That is true. And it has to be supported by the evidence. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you have very specific climatic data, which is a huge challenge globally, right? These are projections that are more broad. You don't have them very localized, but looking at what is present, what are the, what are the, so what I'm looking for. What, are the, what is a community experience? And so it doesn't have to be, you know, scientific data. It could also be experiential. What are you getting from interviewing the community members about their experience of climate change? That is something that would be acceptable. But, you know, really it has to be evidence-based, I would say. Maybe not specifically data-based, but evidence-based. Is there evidence supporting your proposed initiative is really the question that we need to answer. So yeah. if I'm in DC right now, flooding is a huge issue in DC every summer. If I was proposing a project that's about drought, addressing drought in the summer, then there's a question there, is that really an, an experience that is being experienced in DC? Or did it just sound nice to have a project on drought resilience where it's not necessarily being experienced? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. All right, great. So do you have, let's, maybe you can talk about some examples of projects you have funded because you have a list on your website, which is very nice. I love it when funders actually list organizations they have funded and you have about, I think seven in the first round. I think the second round you haven't announced, is that right? Yeah, we're still currently reviewing applicants in the second round. Let's look at some grantees. Any in particular that Blue Finance, World Resource Institute, WWF, Blue U, we can talk about to give some flavor, some depth to what, what you're looking for. Yeah, I, I mean, for me personally, I think on, on our side, like from the um, perspective of the, of the UN Environment Program, which is where mm -hmm. I, am, I am based, one of the things I think that's really exciting about the EBA fund and especially in this first round of, of, of the, the first cohort of applications that have become um, successfully made it to the uh, inner circle of the fund. Some of them are, are a little bit more like, I would say, traditional EBA in the sense of looking at issues like riverbanks and erosion control in Fiji. That's one of the examples. But there's others that are quite innovative and are actually linking into really important topics in the climate change uh, space, which, which are linked to both adaptation and even mitigation. And those are projects in this batch. We have some projects that are looking at food supplies. There's this mangroves and shrimp in Indonesia project that's looking at food supply at the same time as, as using mangroves as an adaptation measure. So mangroves like, and yeah. shrimp in the same ecosystem. Well, Sure. I mean, you have right? some mangroves are actually mangroves are breeding grounds for all sorts of, of fish and, and food. Right. And so when you protect mangroves, a lot of fishermen also do their fishing. You can have, you know, shrimp, crab, fish within those mangrove roots and ecosystems. And they're important ecosystems for for food supply. I find that a really interesting angle to look at. A project. Yeah. And. I mean, the sustainability of it's super challenging because it's this, you know, you have a tragedy of the commons potential and yeah. as soon as the money's run out, then what? And then, so what, what drew you to this particular project? You're like, okay, yeah, this one seems like it's got some, got, it's got some legs. So one of the things that I think, one of the things I think is super tough sometimes on the, on the nature environment side is making, making the argument that protecting nature and ecosystems has multiple benefits and purposes, right? So this is technically a fund that's looking, where EBA looks at protecting nature and ecosystems for the purposes of adaptation. 
But there are lots of great reasons to protect nature and ecosystems. They include also mitigation benefits. They include water supply and food supply. And even if you can't, like you were talking earlier about making that, needing to make a climate change and adaptation link very strong. We, you need that for this fund, but if you can also address issues that we know people are facing right now, right? And we'll be facing also in the future. Like I shrimp think farming, you're saying, or crabs. Alternate sources of food that might mm -hmm. take you off of land-based farming, for example, right? So if you can protect it instead of aquaculture, right, which can be quite destructive to coasts and, and other habitats, if you can protect natural habitats, and you understand that the benefit of that, if you keep that habitat and that ecosystem intact, the benefits of it will be felt for generations to come. And, you know, as an added bonus, mangroves are a total superhero in the climate change uh, space, right? So they protect against flooding, they protect against uh, storm surges and waves at the coast, right? So, and, and they've got huge carbon storage as well. So mangroves are one of those kinds of ecosystems that you just kind of want to protect in this world. <laughs> and so a project like this that makes an additional case for local communities, you know, why they should be protecting those ecosystems, hopefully beyond the scope of this fund, right? Beyond the scope of this project. We hope that those local communities will see the benefits of keeping that ecosystem working well for generations to come. So that's the kind of thing that excites me about some of the projects that we've seen come through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of like Gen 2 EBA, where it's a, a little bit different approach. Okay, so I have a question about these projects you funded, because in principle, you fund for-profit companies. But I think all of these are nonprofits. And they're, so did you also, what, what's your thoughts on that? Is it just for-profits don't really have like the focus or is it, is it really worthwhile for a for-profit company to apply? What are your thoughts on why none have, as far as I can tell, none have won at least on this page. Um, and so I can jump in on this one. In mm -hmm. terms of who we fund, um, the EBA fund is intended to fund, you know, any organization that meets the eligibility requirements. So it could be private sector, it could be not-for-profit. There are three exceptions to that, and one is government partners, only because we are funded by the International Climate Initiative of the German Ministry of Environment and Nuclear Safety. And because of that, they have bilateral funding agreements with countries. And so we cannot, you know, through the EBA fund, grant to government agencies because in practice, they're already receiving funding from the German government for those purposes. The second exception is UNEP offices for, you know, conflict of, of, of interest purposes, as well as IUCN offices for similar reasons. So there's only three exceptions to that rule. As long as it's a legally recognized organization, it is eligible for funding. And so in terms of the seven grantees, um, five of them are not profits, and then two are actually for-profit organizations. And the one with the mangrove shrimp project is a for-profit organization. It's a consulting company headquartered in Switzerland. Oh, great. Been doing this work in Vietnam. They had initially started the work in Vietnam and are now taking it to Indonesia and further developing the approach. Okay, great. Awesome. Thanks. In general, I'm wondering if you've seen some trends in ecosystem-based adaptation that you could talk about what you're seeing because you have a bird's eye view that a lot of entrepreneurs don't, or someone like me, I, I don't have the same bird's eye view you do. I think you had something like 600 applications or more in the last round. So you've seen a lot of what's, what's going on. So what trends are you seeing? 
maybe I can just say more generally what, what we're seeing in that and the EBA conversation space. And then Wendy, if you'd like to say more about the applications, like specifically for the fund, maybe if there's a trend in there, you'd like to comment on. One thing I think, Kyle, that we can certainly say is that, as you mentioned, NBS, nature-based solutions and EBA have exploded in popularity and attention over the past few years. And so that's a that's a real trend that we're seeing. We're hearing those words in the mouths of people that we never expected. <laughs> and you know, working in our space, we've been talking about it for a long time in our our member states, our countries, and our organizations. We've, we've used these terms and we kind of thought the rest of the world might, you know, might not know what we're talking about. And now it seems like people really care to know what we're talking about and they themselves are talking about it. So that's a huge trend. Um, second trend in general around COP26 in Glasgow, we just saw, I would say, also an explosion in interest and funding going towards adaptation in general. And so those are those are two trends that I think that we're kind of in the middle of with this fund. And that's that's quite exciting to see. Otherwise, one thing that's really neat, I think, is just seeing how EBA can be applied and is seen to be applicable in other sectors that it might, you know, that we might not have seen it in before. And, and food and food systems is, is, is one of those top priorities. Energy is another, and there's an interesting energy project in this first cohort as well, which I don't know if it's a trend, but it would be a welcome, I think. <laughs> what's, that, what's that organization? What are they doing? So the energy one is, let me just give you more information on it. One second. It's the World Resources Institute one. Yeah, it's the oh, R okay. WRI one. I got it right here. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the, there's a really neat energy project that we've uh, funded in this first batch of seven. And it's on water and energy security in Costa Rica with the World Resources Institute, WRI, in the driving seat for that. And we, we, liked, we liked seeing those links. Whenever you can make, theoretically, you can make a great case that nature-based solutions can address adaptation needs and should also be able to address the mitigation side as well with reducing carbon emissions, for example. This is one of those kinds of projects that we see trying to do that. And that's quite exciting. It, I don't think adaptation is the, the, the ugly stepsister anymore. I think it's in the center of a lot of the conversations. And uh, maybe our adaptation efforts can actually help that flip side of, of the mitigation efforts at the same time. So I like, I like seeing us come from that other angle back to mitigation. Yeah, say more about adaptation, because the word I hear a lot, I see it a lot in grant applications. You know, how does this affect adaptation? But it's like, what are the what are the principles of adaptation? Are there certain pillars that should be addressed? You know, anything that seems like adaptation could also have you know negative uh, consequences as well, possibly. So how do how should one think about this when answering a question about adaptation or thinking about it? That's a really interesting question. I think that it's clear, it's safe to say that we can adapt in good and bad ways, right? So so there are there are definite examples of maladaptation, things that have been tried that maybe, you know, we adapted because we needed to change, but maybe we changed in the wrong way or we ad adjusted in the wrong way. I actually much prefer the word resilience to adaptation in a lot of ways. I think resilience is a lot um, more positive and a stronger word to use. Ultimately, what you want is that ability to become stronger, less vulnerable and susceptible to 
current or future or even perceived potential impacts of climate change. So how do we become ready to adjust? How do we adjust the way we're thinking? How do we become able to more quickly bounce back from the impacts of climate change or, or, or prevent them from impacting us in the first place? And the, those are kind of at the heart of, of a lot of these conversations. As Wendy mentioned, it was really interesting that she talked about drought in Washington, DC, because I was recently reading a great by Catherine Hayhoe. I don't know if you've read Saving Us yet, but that's that's an amazing book I read recently. Tell us about it. So Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist, and her book is about it's it's called a climate scientist's case for hope. So she talks a lot about how she can be in that area of climate change, which has a lot of you know very dire predictions and a lot of a lot of really scary things that are happening, but how she can still be hopeful in that conversation. And she lays it out in a scientific kind of way about why we should be hopeful and here's what we can be hopeful about. One of the things she says, and she lives in Texas, and one of the things she says about climate change is that in Texas, you know that the roads are, are straight on, right? So you can drive for hundreds of miles and you can look behind you and that's going to tell you exactly where you're going, right? So the road behind you looks the same as the road that you're going down. She said, climate change isn't that way. The road behind you and the way you've traveled up to now is absolutely no prediction for what the road could look like ahead of you. And so if you've never experienced flooding or drought before in your region, that doesn't mean that you won't be facing that in 20 or 30 years. And so part of the thinking that I think we have to do around the, this whole climate change, the scenarios and the debate, is kind of be ready for multiple things that could happen, <laughs> even if you've never experienced them before, and even if you thought it could never happen where where you live. And and so I think there are some some you know some basic things that we can do that maybe help us to navigate multiple hazards, right? And I and I like that idea of just increasing our resilience generally to understand those risks, to prepare for them, and to and to yeah to combat potential multiple hazards at once by doing something that makes good uh, environmental sense anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, finding the overlap of that Venn diagram is pretty, pretty tricky. I know that there's also like very short-term weather changes, which are probably very normal, like some years it rains, some years it doesn't. That's just the way it is. And then other longer-term trends as well. I'm trying to think of, is, is and the, maybe take the example of the recent pandemic, current pandemic, now everyone's talking about how do we prepare for pandemics, but no one was talking about that two years ago. And even someone like Bill Gates had to talk about this like 2014 being like, there's gonna be a pandemic soon. We're, we're overdue, basically. And no one seemed to pay much attention to it. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, so can you make, is it possible to make a list of things and say, okay, here's like the five categories of risks that this particular project should be considering? Like there could be drought, there could be a pandemic, there could be this and like, we can deal with these things or should it just be that the downside risk is so low or should there just be like a savings account rainy day fund? Maybe each organization has got its own strategy for this. I'm not sure if you want to comment or correct me where I think my, it my should initial be thoughts go. All of these, right? <laughs> you make a list of potential impacts and you also have a rainy day fund because we don't know as Liz pointed out. And I would say, yeah, my example for DC may not have been the best, but it's the idea of multiple hazards, right? So you're thinking broadly and being prepared. And that's the benefit of nature-based solutions really in general is if you are conserving your ecosystem and it's, and it's a healthy ecosystem, 
it's built to withstand a lot of these different impacts anyway. So, you know, as long as you're thinking about that, then you are benefiting from the, from the multiple co-benefits. But, you know, going back to the question of how should we be doing, a key part of EBA is also that it's part of an overall adaptation strategy. So it's not just, you know, silver bullet is going to solve everything. It's part of a very concerted effort to solve multiple challenges. So when you're talking about people, because, you know, people are central to nature-based solutions and to EBA, you have to think about other aspects as well. You're thinking about health, so talking about COVID, right, and future pandemics, and even just general public health. What is the role of ecosystems in this? Thinking about the socioeconomic context, right? Thinking about food security. If people are poor and they're starving, I feel like no one's really going to be prioritizing the forest if the forest is not providing the food. If I need the food right now, you know, how, how are you really going to make the case for me to conserve nature? So you have to find those linkages that nature benefits all of these aspects and it benefits people in all of these ways. So looking at it from a very broad picture of what are the impacts that we're trying to address, how do they co-mingle in this space with other issues as well, and how are we developing an overall adaptation strategy? Mm. Right. Maybe it's a little bit of shift gears or it's looking at the broader picture. I mentioned before, I think you had 622 applications. It looks like there's like seven winners per round. So that's it's harder to get into EBA fund than it is to get into Harvard basically. So very prestigious group of people. What about for entrepreneurs who, you know, are considering to apply, but it just looks like it's too hard. And maybe it's a challenge for you. I'm not sure what you're doing to, if you're making any changes, but it's a lot of effort that entrepreneurs put in to put together a proposal. Is it that like all of them are pretty good, but you just have to pick the best ones or are 99% of them really just not even close to being a fit or 90% of them aren't even close to being a fit. And then fitting into all of that is like, what do you recommend for entrepreneurs to make it more likely so that it's not like buying a lottery ticket when they apply, but they're actually putting together something that is what's in line with what you're looking for. Is there common mistakes that you can call out for people when they're looking to apply? I can maybe start off, Wendy, and I know that I think I'm sure both on both sides will have a lot to say on this particular question, but I like that analogy with applying to Harvard. I think that similarly to the, the selection board at Harvard, they have to look at hundreds of, of you know, thousands in that case, right, of, of excellent applications, right? So probably anyone who's applied in the first place has a great idea, and there's no there's no doubt that they all are great ideas. But as Wendy pointed out, there are very specific criteria that we're looking for, and so some applications will simply not be able to pass those those definitions that are there in place in this in the set of criteria. We also have to be serious about, of course, you know, we can only give money to organizations that can prove that they can handle that those funds and use them properly and report back to us properly. And that's because we need to be good stewards of, of that money that's entrusted to us. And so those, you know, the regulations and the criteria are certainly there for good reason. But I think more than that, and this is probably also similar to a, an elite university, you, you know, I think you're going to want to look for, we'd certainly look for applications that really stand out to us, you know, something that's different from the rest, something that is trying to do something um, that really would be impactful and where you you can see the long-term benefit of what this grant would mean to them. And I think certainly, you know, this is where I think the, the private sector and entrepreneurs can be extremely valuable to the fund 
But if there's if there's a demonstration there that by you know with this small kind of seed grant kind of funding from us, if 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 you know a tenfold or twentyfold amount of funding could be mobilized because of that with a consortium of bigger partners and a longer term impact and and you know a set of stewards around that, then I think that's extremely interesting. I mean, we'd love to see these small investments, you know, grow by 20 fold. If somebody could make that case to us, I think they'd have a really good case in the fund. Great. Wendy, do you want to add to that? Sure. In terms of advice to entrepreneurs, one of the biggest ones I would say is probably think about who you're partnering with, just because, you know, when you talk about ecosystem restoration, ecosystem uh, conservation and sustainable management, it's a very specific skill set that I don't know how many entrepreneurs out there might have it, right? But the best ways to think about who are you partnering with, who can help with that aspect, who can help with developing a strong EBA proposal where the entrepreneur that brings the innovation or, or, or the novelty to what has been traditionally implemented. So really it goes back to, you know, think about the capacity that you have and where you can get to augment that. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, partnerships are, I think are encouraged from what I saw in the in the notes. So yeah, you don't have to do Very it by yourself. So. Yeah, you can't save, solve, solve all the world's problems by yourself. Great. All right. But I would say just jumping in on that point too, I think that you know, big and small organizations can certainly be encouraged to apply. But in terms of the partners that you're looking to work with, a really key question I think for all of us is how to meaningfully involve local communities so that they're really involved in that project itself and in maintaining, you know, that that work after the shelf life of this particular project is over right so so this this issue comes up again and again for all of us working in this space is is what does it mean to involve local communities how yes. to involve them how to really make that impactful for them where they see the benefits of that of this work and i think that's that's you know that's that's something that a lot of us really struggle with making sure happens correctly have you seen any particularly good examples of involving the local community that I'm, I'm thinking that would really put an application over over the edge in terms of being something that's interesting is if, if you see that do you have any examples of that i've seen some really interesting projects i'm not sure if it's necessarily through the fund this fund itself as it's also still quite new but i've seen some really interesting projects on the kenyan coast uh, some of the forest there's there's very little indigenous forest left on the, the kenyan coast but but one of them is near um, Watamu on the north coast. And um, they involve the communities that have always lived in that forest in, in the projects that are um, uh, being carried out there for them to make additional funding so or additional money from those projects. So one of those, one of those livelihoods that's supported in the forest restoration project that I know of is beekeeping. Another is butterfly harvesting. So it's, you know, you know, it's basically collecting uh, caterpillars and cocoons and butter and for butterflies to be sold elsewhere um, around the world for could be for hatching could be for 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 other other areas. But this is a really interesting there are really interesting livelihoods that you can or mushroom collecting is another one, right? So there are livelihoods that you can only really carry out if a forest is intact, right? And so making sure that those, the people who live there are then retrained in order to carry out that work and then they benefit from it by gaining the income. 
Um, I think that's that's an incredibly interesting model that I, I, I always like to see. Well, that's great. And yeah. Just go to go further on that, you know, Liz was talking about like skill share, right? So you have people that are learning skills that will help with their livelihoods. But I think another interesting aspect of, of that in involving communities in generating data, right? So looking at people's experiences, not just necessarily on the scientific aspect, but what are people experiencing on the day-to-day? -day? How is that localized? How does that manifest? So really integrate, even in the project design, what are your needs? So starting from the very beginning, you know, what do you, what, what are the needs that need addressing and how can then we work and develop, co-develop a project that addresses these needs? So, you know, thinking about engagement in all different facets um, of, of the work that we do. But as you said, it's, it's, and it's a constant challenge and we're always learning and getting better at doing this. Great. All right. This has been uh, really helpful, really interesting um, and exciting to hear about these uh, organizations that are merging so many different challenging pieces together from mangroves to shrimp to people's livelihoods. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Is there any last things you want to say for the audience or any place you want to direct people to get more information? I feel like I've been a broken record the last couple of months since the launch of the EBA fund, but really going to the website is the first place. And so it's www.globalebafund.org. There's a lot of information there. There's the grants procedures manual, which includes all the eligibility criteria and everything that we're looking for. What are the criteria for EBA? It's a 47 page document, but it has everything that you would need. And really then, you know, just looking at the announcements to see what are the previous projects that have been funded, but that's not the limit. It's, it really, this is just the beginning. So I wouldn't say that these seven is the model for what the fund is looking for. It's can't, it's broader than that. And it could be anything as long as it, 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 it aligns with the criteria, but we're looking to applicants to tell us what is catalytic and what is innovative. Fantastic. Liz, Wendy, thanks so much. Thanks for being on Thank the podcast. Thank you so much, Kyle. Real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Wishes Granted. If you found something useful in there, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to our newsletter so you know when the next one comes out. This is the kind of information that I wish I had when I started my business in Kenya. And so I'm sure there's someone else in your network who would benefit from this. So please share with them so that they too can benefit from the lessons learned, successes, the failures of others, because we're talking about millions of dollars here in every podcast. If you can learn from the mistakes of others, you can literally save yourself millions of dollars every time you listen share with someone else subscribe and we'll see you next time Thank you.